0: Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller and on the show, Garland Nixon in a continuing conversation about everything wrong with Hollywood.
1: Hello, Garland Nixon here, and we're going to talk about uh, something interesting, this whole so-called diversity thing going on in Hollywood. Let's talk. Hello, Garland here. I think about this. There was a time when the America was apartheid and everybody that knows me knows I talk about anything race, the issue of race, could care careless. I'll talk about it. It's real. Yeah, I'm, I'm a a um, philosophical minded person and a philosophical minded person has to be willing to talk about any and everything from an intellectual perspective. Right. OK, so there was a time in America where complete apartheid. If a black guy wanted a job as a fireman, wouldn't happen. You go to Hollywood, we can give you a job, but you got to be a tap dancer or something. Hey, we'll give you a job. What are you gonna be? You be? Would you prefer to be the maid or the butler, right? That was reality. I don't think that's fair. Most people today would look at it and say, well, that's not fair, right? Not fair. Black guy goes to Hollywood. He's a good actor. He wants to be an opportunity to act. Give you a, 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 a an example. Paul Robeson. So Paul Robeson Jr., who was related, a story to me about his father, a true story. And he said, look, my dad, this was like in 1940s or whatever. And he was an international star, right? Paul Robeson was an international star. He was one of the considered, you know, probably the greatest baritone who've ever ever lived, right? And so some Hollywood and he was making movies all over the world. The guy was huge and just a brilliant um, talent, an entertainer. And um, some Hollywood execs saw that, and you know what they thought? Cha-ching! We can make money. So they come to come to his home, and they say, "Look, here's what we're willing to do. We want you to make five movies. We're going to give you two million dollars. Think about two million in the 1940s. You know that was like a hundred million dollar contract in this day and age. We'll give you two million and five movies, and you're going to be the star. You are. We're going to make you the star of all stars. You know his talent was without question. You know." Uh, barely just a stellar talent. So we're going to, okay. He's like, okay, that sounds like a good idea. Wow. 2 million. That's a lot. Hey, let's get down. And they said, the only thing is, you know, we know you don't like this, but you're going to have to be like a maid or butler. You'll be the star. You'll sing your songs. You'll do all this stuff. And Paul Robeson said, I ain't going to do it. Oh, well, you have to do it. He tore the check up and said, get out of my house. Goodbye. Not doing it. Right. Why? Because he's like, I'm not going to go and pretend that black people have to be second class citizens. That was great. A man who stood for what he believed in. I, I I love that. Right. And let me add this about Paul Robeson. Did Paul Robeson stand for black people and African freedom worldwide? Yes, he did. Did he go to the north of England? Did he stand for these white um coal miners and workers in England and trade unionists and and industrial workers in in and, 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 and that were getting you know uh, beaten down he absolutely did he stood for them he stood for justice regardless of the race he certainly understood that you know black people weren't getting a fair deal at that place in time and he stood for that but he stood for workers and everyone you know he would call literally these um union halls in England, where the coal miners were and sing over the array right, when he couldn't go there, when they took his passport, he called call insignities. He loved these people and they loved him. Okay. Beautiful. That's the way it's supposed to be. Now, just tell me, I don't know, maybe you think I'm wrong. I don't. If some people do, I don't really care. This is my position, like it or not like it. And I've talked about this before. I've driven through Maryland, I live in Maryland, wealthy state, a lot of money, education, you name it, right? And next to Maryland is uh, West Virginia, a beautiful friggin' state, beautiful state. Uh, West Virginia is absolutely gorgeous, but a very poor state. And you drive, I've driven through, I remember one time I drove to go to this thing in Wheeling, I think Wheeling, West Virginia. And... I'm riding through the mountains and, you know, I saw that third world poverty, you know, it's like I've ridden through um, the backwoods of Mississippi, driven through just to look and you see that third world poverty, you know, I remember one time in, in, in Mississippi. In this little town and right in the middle of this little country town, there was like five or six school buses sitting on blocks that had smoke stacks, where people had just taken school buses and decided I'm going to make this my house. They had a, a stove in there and what have you. And it was like a little village, like a little school bus village. i would never seen anything like it. I'm like, holy crap, these people are really poor. Road through West Virginia, right? And you see dire poverty, not black dire poverty, not white dire poverty, dire poverty. You know, you're riding along and you see this frigging trailer sitting on the side of a mountain with like sticks holding it up. And you're like, for God's sake, I couldn't sleep in that for a second. I think that the sticks are going to break and I'm going to roll downhill in a flat spot in the town. Right. And I see, you know, throughout Appalachia, very, very poor, poor, black and white people, poverty. Right. And I wouldn't want to say I'm going to go in there and I'm going to pull all the black people out and give them a fair shot and give them a good job and make their lives better and leave the poor white folks or vice versa. I wouldn't want to do that, would I? No, that wouldn't be what I believe in. And I look at Hollywood and I say to myself, I don't think it was fair when they said to Paul Robeson, you have to be a maid or a butler or a driver. When black people who are well-talented went to Hollywood and they said, "Now nah, we can't give you a leading role. We can't give you a role at all. That wasn't fair, was it? So, is it fair today when some white guy takes uh, acting classes and hones his skills and he goes to Hollywood and he can't get a job? Because now, back then, it was we only hire white people. Sorry, our advertisements are all white. Look at the old advertisements from the 70s and 60s. Oh, white. ain't no black folks in those. I don't care what they're selling. Ain't a lot of black folks, right? Maybe a Popeye's chicken or something. That's about all they're going to give black folks, right? If I don't think that's fair, Do I think it's fair that white guys who want to be an actor and who hone their skills and they go to Hollywood and they read for a part and they don't get it because, hey, sorry, white guy, you ain't in no more. It's all about black people. Now, if you were a overweight woman of color with like really short hair who, you know, couldn't, wouldn't be reflected in Hollywood in the past. Now you would be reflected in Hollywood. So this is what we're going to do. Sorry. No, no, no job for you here, buddy. I look at it and I say, well, I don't think that's fair either. See, people like me and people well, I don't know about you, people like me. It's about justice to me. It ain't about justice for black folks, ain't about justice for white folks. Now, to some extent, you can take into account, I can make uh, arguments about historically people groups being held back and that's not fair and that should be dealt with. Yes, certainly I can make that argument. That's a different argument. I can make the argument and I can point to Native Americans and I can say, what the hell are I doing driving onto a Native American reservation and 30% of the people don't even have running water? And they don't and they they're living in shambles and shacks. That's unthinkable. The government yet we got hundreds of billions of dollars for war and we can't do the provide the most basic infrastructure on a Native American reservation. That is an embarrassment to this country. And it's unfair. And I can look at that and say that ain't right. We need to. First of all, Native Americans, it was their land. It was taken from them unfairly and they need to be fairly Dealt with and compensated at least give decent housing and running water and electricity, for God's sake. It's a humiliation to me that our country doesn't do that. But that's a, you know, that's so that's part of this conversation. It's the part that says this making a diverse advertisement for Walmart is not going to do anything to help the poor Native American people. It ain't going to fix anything. It's not going to change ideas. It's not going to do anything but aggravate people like me, who say, I can see through this. It looks like a fraud to me. I smell a rat. In the same way, when I turn on Jurassic Park, and the CIA is the good guy. uh, What's the guy's name? What's the woman's name? Zell Zodana or something. She was the blue, the really pretty blue lady in um, Guardians of the Galaxy, right? She was in Guardians of the Galaxy. And now there's some show that she's doing where she's like a CIA agent who's going around the world doing good, stopping the bad guys, right? Well, when I see that, I smell a rat. Oh, we've got a diverse female who's, whoa, oh, she's got a great part. Oh, isn't that wonderful? What is it? Oh, she's a um, intelligence agency who's going around the world doing good. No. I'm not down for that uh, CIA and intelligence operative. That's the latest thing, the intelligence operative that's going around the world doing good. How uh, you know? How uh, uh, far is that from the truth? Right. So. In the same way that when I see a diverse female who's being an intelligence, and, and don't get me wrong, Zelzodhana is in fact a good actress and a very beautiful woman. So I'm not saying that they missed the mark on using or giving her, you know, she's a good actress and she's pretty well great. Hey, she's the kind of person that Hollywood should put in a movie. Great, she looks good. She's got a lot of talent, wonderful. But my point is, they're still making a CIA, doing this thing with the, the good CIA agents. So I still understand that they're using a beautiful actress, talented actress to try to train me that the intelligence agencies are here for the good of the order when I know better.
0: coming up next on Arts Express, what's going down at the Slamdance Film Festival this month, that David vs. Goliath grassroots independent gathering playing out simultaneously with the Sundance Film Festival in Utah and in opposition to that Hollywood East and West anointed gathering. And phoning into the show from Columbia to talk about his documentary, Opening at Slamdance on January 20th is director Sean Madison talking about Petro tracing the triumphant and unlikely victory of former M-19 guerrilla Gustavo Petro, now leftist president of Colombia in that rapidly right-wing U.S.-controlled country. And Petro negotiating as well between the continuing elements of the FARC struggle, the oldest half a century revolution historically, the US military and subversive activities, and the drug cartels in that country. Even as Petro took time out to denounce Israeli-Gaza genocide at the UN recently, and having just attended the progressive Bernardo Arevalo presidential inauguration in Guatemala this past weekend, blocked for hours by the right wing there from taking place and Petro declaring he would not leave the country until they allowed Arevalo to be sworn in, which he finally was. Here's our conversation with Sean Madison from (laughs) Colombia. and welcome to our show
2: hello thanks for having me
0: and where are you calling from
2: i'm currently in medellin colombia
0: oh you're still there wow okay uh, yeah <laughs> well why was this I've, I've
2: been i've been living here uh between here and new york for the last couple of years
0: oh oh okay why was this a documentary that you were inspired to create
2: yeah i mean so we uh I first met Gustavo Petro back in 2007 when I was a college student, and um, a couple of friends and I, one of whom is Colombian, um, went to Colombia with Gustavo Petro and made a student film about the work that he was doing at that time um, to highlight uh, corruption and some of the connections that existed between um, the former government of uh, ex-president Álvaro Uribe and um, paramilitary groups that were active in the country at the time and continue to be active, um, in, in various forms. And, um, you know, we made that student film and, uh, 15 years later, we went back to Colombia in order to see or gauge Petro's interest in, um, us being able to follow his political campaign for the presidency, because we had seen some early polling, um, that said that he might have a chance of winning the election and becoming the first ever, left-wing progressive president of Colombia, And so to us, it was actually kind of an an interesting opportunity to um, combine Petro's biographical story with the political history of the country and with the story of uh, the 2022 election campaign in order to kind of uh, tell a well-rounded story in this documentary. Um, And that's what we hope shows through um, in the final result.
0: And you mentioned that there are still active groups in the country, guerrilla groups.
2: Could yes. you say
0: a little more about that?
2: Yeah. So, yeah, the Colombian um, armed conflict has been going on for decades. Um, there are various armed actors: um, the ELN, the FARC, um, which you know are guerrilla groups that largely and historically have shared have shared a kind of Marxist left wing ideology. Um, then you have um, paramilitary groups. Despite the FARC demobilization in 2016, um, subsequently uh, there were uh, members of the FARC who refused to demobilize and who became known as the dissident FARC and who continue to be active in the country. And so in spite of multiple attempts at brokering a peace process, um, what we've seen time and again is that the the country continues to struggle with bringing about what Petro is calling uh, total peace and so, what Petro has committed himself to, and and continues to try to negotiate, is to bring an end to the conflict in order to bring about stability in Colombia and allow the country to move, move in a new direction than it than it's been in um, since the 1940s, and and one could argue even earlier than that. Um, so that's that's sort of an overview of, from my perspective, of the the Colombian conflict.
0: There have been attempted or there have been threatened assassinations against Petro and uh, attempts to see that he doesn't run again and a very nasty right-wing press. And also, have you been threatened?
2: Yeah, so we have not directly been threatened. Um, We were always very aware while making this film that um, there were security considerations that were very, very important to keep in mind while we were with Petro on his travel schedule. He, he frequently or always travels with, um, an extensive security detail, um, made up of bodyguards, um, and also riding around in bulletproof vehicles. And so, you know, these are risks that we as filmmakers always, um, kept in mind. Um, but we, I think Colombians hope for the best. Um, and, you know, it, it, There are also uh, many social leaders and environmental defenders and human rights advocates who continue to be selectively assassinated in the country. And that's another problem that Petro is going to have to confront because some of those assassinations have have actually risen um, since he took office. So um, there are a lot of uh, moving parts to this, and um, it's going to take a very large coalition of people. Um, to, to address these problems.
0: Now, uh, he's uh, quite fearless for, uh, you know, a, a politician who's always in danger. And uh, since you made the film concerning Israel as well, uh, he's the most vehement speaker against uh, in Latin America against the genocide that Israel is conducting. He spoke yeah. out at the UN. Uh, can you say anything about that?
2: Yeah, he he's been very vocal about his uh his position on um, Palestinian rights and on the conflict um in, in Israel and Palestine and uh he he feels um that there should be an end uh to occupation um and he has made his views very clear um from the beginning and been very consistent um and so that's not something that we include in the film. Um, we actually... Well, it's, it, it you know, happened
0: after your film, so...
2: Correct, yeah. yeah. I just What I mean is that it's it's beyond the purview of what we're focusing on in the film, um, but it is interesting to see Petro as president take out um, positions on various issues since he took the presidency, and certainly that's one of the ones that's been more ho- high profile, hmm. as well as his recent participation in uh, the Climate Change Summit in Dubai.
0: And nobody believed in Latin America that a left president could ever be elected in such a right-wing country. I've spoken to some Latin Americans about that. What are your thoughts about that, that no one believed it could happen?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that many people didn't believe that a progressive leftist could win in Colombia because it because it is such a historically right-wing country, and Uh, I believe that a couple of factors led to Petro's election. Um, There was widespread discontent with the previous administration of Ivan Duque, as well as with um, almost two decades of uh, uh, governance by um, presidents connected to former President Álvaro Uribe and his Centro Democrático, or Democratic Center Party. Um, Many of these policies were neoliberal policies, which Um, you could argue, um, were not uh, to the benefit of many people in Colombia. And so um, this kind of uh, entrenched inequality combined with the social unrest that took place during Iván Duque's presidency that were sparked by calls for, by attempts at pension reform, um, and then subsequently uh, the crisis of the pandemic I believe, created a kind of constellation of um, different problems that uh, actually kind of gave Petro the opportunity to ap- campaign as a change candidate and, um, you know, uh, state that he would be the one to address a lot of those those issues that the country had been facing and, and had been so upset about.
0: And one elephant in the room is the United States with all sorts of operatives in the embassy and the U.S. military bases there and always maneuvering to block the left politically there. So what do you think happened? And did you interview any of those Americans in question?
2: Yeah. Well, we, you know, the United States has historically been Colombia's number one security partner in the region. Obviously, you can look back at Plan Colombia which is a largely failed um, drug policy uh, between the United States and Colombia. Uh, A lot of eradication of coca, which didn't achieve its stated aims and which, in retrospect, were a, a, a huge waste of money for the United States, did nothing to curtail the conflict in Colombia, as we've seen. Generally speaking, the war on drugs, as the U.S. has historically um, undertaken it has been a, an abject failure and and many people are coming to realize that. I think in terms of um, you know the possibility of Petro being elected, uh, there were some there were some fairly neutral uh, signals from the biden administration about his candidacy, um, certainly not any type of enthusiasm about his his the possibility of his presidency. But once it be- became clear, um, the level of popular support that he had um, and that he, you know, was not trying to suspend, you know, relations with the United States or, you know, shut down the military bases and the presence in Colombia that you alluded to. I think that, um, you know, they, the U.S. government decided that Petro was somebody that they could work with. And what we saw soon after Petro got elected is that almost within days, he was meeting with Anthony Blinken and getting on the phone with Joe Biden. Mm. Um, and he's traveled to the United States multiple times um since he got elected. So um I believe that you know Petro is a statesman and he uh his biggest focus is trying to work towards um, you know, the, his stated aims uh for Colombia and he'll continue to do that. But you know the US presence in Colombia is not going anywhere anytime soon. Mm.
0: And did you attempt to interview
2: any of those Americans there? No, we, um, generally speaking, I'm not particularly interested in what the State Department has to say. So we didn't really, and most of the time, they're not really authorized to talk to the media about these types of matters Mm. regardless. Um, We were at the Havana Film Festival in Cuba, where some of the themes that we talked about in the film resonated with the audience there and now we're going to be screening at slam dance in utah for our u.s premiere and it will be really interesting to see what a u.s audience how a u.s audience reacts to it that being said we have screened it for people in colombia um and colombia is a very divided country you look at you know uh ha- over half the country or half the country you know has its own views of petro which are decidedly negative and the other half um are, are more supportive of him Um, Now that percentage may have shifted in one direction or the other, but um, I would say that Colombian society is very much a mirror of the United States and other countries in the world right now, which are hyper-polarized. And so when we're gauging the reaction to the film, it's actually very interesting to see how it varies from country to country and region to region. Um, But what we're most looking forward to is screening the film in Colombia in the early part of next year, which is right around the corner. And I, I very much look forward to seeing um, what people have to say here in Colombia,
0: and has there been a reaction from the right wing there or the right wing media?
2: Uh, not yet. Oh. I'm I'm looking <laughs> forward to hearing what they have to say, though.
0: <laughs> and what do you hope to convey with your film to audiences in the Slam Dance yeah. Festival audience? On the one hand, and to Latin American audiences and Colombian audiences, would that be different?
2: I think one of the things that we hope that audiences take away from this film is the power of collective action and grassroots organizing can lead to historic change. You know, it was an inspiring thing for us to be able to work on this film and, and witness this kind of historic moment in Colombia, which will never be repeated in, in exactly the same way. And, and I think that as as foreigners, uh, um, as Americans, we were privileged um, to be allowed uh, sort of a window into um, what was going on in Colombia, and and we hope to continue to make films in Colombia. Mm.
0: And in terms of Slam Dance, what can you say about having your film at Slam dance and why you think Slamdance Dance is an important festival for your film to be seen there?
2: It's a tremendous honor to be having our U.S. premiere at Slam Dance. Um, it's you know been going on since the mid 90s and it is historically a a really wonderful platform for emerging filmmakers um, many of whom or all of whom are first-time directors um with with budgets under a million dollars um we you know we had to really scrap and scrounge to make this film on an independent budget and we had some amazing executive producers who came on who believed in what we were doing and and in the subject matter. So, you know, we were lucky in the sense that we were able to build a team to help get the film financed. But um, I think that there is no better place for us to be premiering the film in North America or in the US than at Slam Dance because of the history it has of, uh, of supporting emerging filmmakers and stories that may be slightly outside the mainstream um, of the film industry and of the mainstream media.
0: Great. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Sean, for calling into our show from Columbia and be safe.
2: Thank you very much. I appreciate your time and I look forward to speaking again sometime.
0: Yes. Okay. Bye.
2: All right. Take care. Bye-bye.
0: And more information about Slamdance and the screenings of Petro is online at slamdance.com.
2: Uh, hey, John Savage. If you're if you're listening to this
1: right now, you're way ahead of everybody else in the world. This is Arts Express with Prairie Miller, and she's had the courage to give a call to me, uh, John
0: Savage, and uh, I'm grateful to be a part of what I consider to be one of our most important radio programs and networks we have available in this country
3: today. So hang in there. All right.
0: Arts Express. Brett Gregory at our UK desk, delving into the writings of Franz Kafka. Kafka.
3: Kafka. Kafka. Is that your real name, or why shouldn't it be?
4: There are people watching.
3: This has been opened. Oh. Shall I reseal it?
4: i understand you fancy yourself as a writer you should find a more
2: athletic hobby Ah!
4: To solve a mystery, he will enter a nightmare.
3: Two Parables by Franz Kafka, translated by Willer and Edwin Muir, narrated by Brett Gregory. Before the Law, published in 1915. Before the law stands a doorkeeper. To this doorkeeper there comes a man from the country and prays for admittance to the law. But the doorkeeper says that he cannot grant admittance at the moment. The man thinks it over and then asks if he will be allowed in later. It is possible, says the doorkeeper, but not at the moment. Since the gate stands open as usual and the doorkeeper steps to one side, the man stoops to peer through the gateway into the interior. Observing that, the doorkeeper laughs and says, if you are so drawn to it, just try to go in despite my veto. But take note, I am powerful, and I am only the least of the doorkeepers. From hall to hall, there is one doorkeeper after another, each more powerful than the last. The third doorkeeper is already so terrible that even I cannot bear to look at him. These are difficulties the man from the country has not expected. The law, he thinks, should surely be accessible at all times and to everyone. But as he now takes a closer look at the doorkeeper in his fur coat, with his big sharp nose and long, thin, black, tartar beard, he decides that it is better to wait until he gets permission to enter. The doorkeeper gives him a stool, and lets him sit down at one side of the door. There he sits for days and years. He makes many attempts to be admitted, and wearies the doorkeeper by his importunity. The doorkeeper frequently has little interviews with him, asking him questions about his home and many other things. But the questions are put indifferently, as great lords put them, and always finish with the statement that he cannot be let in yet. The man, who has furnished himself with many things for his journey, sacrifices all he has, however valuable, to bribe the doorkeeper. The doorkeeper accepts everything, but always with the remark, I am only taking it to keep you from thinking you have omitted anything. During these many years, the man fixes his attention almost continuously on the doorkeeper. He forgets the other doorkeepers, and this first one seems to him the sole obstacle preventing access to the law. He curses his bad luck, in his early years boldly and loudly. Later, as he grows old, he only grumbles to himself. He becomes childish, and since, in his year-long contemplation of the doorkeeper, he has come to know even the fleas in his fur collar. He begs the fleas as well to help him, and to change the doorkeeper's mind. At length, his eyesight begins to fail, and he does not know whether the world is really darker or whether his eyes are only deceiving him. Yet, in his darkness, he is now aware of a radiance that streams inextinguishably from the gateway of the law. Now he is not very long to live. Before he dies, all his experiences in these long years gather themselves in his head to one point a question he has not yet asked the doorkeeper. He waves him nearer, since he can no longer raise his stiffening body. The doorkeeper has to bend low toward him, for the difference in height between them has altered much to the man's disadvantage. What do you want to know now? asks the doorkeeper. You are insatiable. Everyone strives to reach the law, says the man. So how does it happen that for all these many years, No one but myself has ever begged for admittance. The doorkeeper recognises that the man has reached his end, and, to let his failing senses catch the words, roars in his ear. No one else could ever be admitted here, since this gate was made only for you. I am now going to shut it. An Imperial Message published in 1919. The Emperor, so a parable runs, has sent a message to you, the humble subject, the insignificant shadow cowering in the remotest distance before the imperial sun. The Emperor, from his deathbed, has sent a message to you alone. He has commanded the messenger to kneel down by the bed and has whispered the message to him. So much store did he lay on it that he ordered the messenger to whisper it back into his ear again. Then, by a nod of the head, he has confirmed that it is right. Yes, before the assembled spectators of his death, all the obstructing walls have been broken down, and on the spacious and loftily mounting open staircases stand in a ring the great princes of the empire. Before all these, he has delivered. His message. The messenger immediately sets out on his journey, a powerful and indefatigable man, now pushing with his right arm, now with his left. He cleaves a way for himself through the throng. If he encounters resistance, he points to his breast, where the symbol of the sun glitters. The way is made easier for him than it would be for any other man. But the multitudes are so vast, their numbers have no end. If he could reach the open fields, how fast he would fly, and soon doubtless you would hear the welcome hammering of his fists on your door. But instead, how vainly does he wear out his strength? Still he is only making his way through the chambers of the innermost palace. Never will he get to the end of them, and if he succeeded in that, nothing would be gained. He must next fight his way down the stair, and... If he succeeded in that, nothing would be gained. The courts would still have to be crossed, and after the courts the second outer palace, and once more stairs and courts, and once more another palace, and so on for thousands of years, and if at last he should burst through the outermost gate, but never, never can that happen, the imperial capital would lie before him, the centre of the world, crammed to bursting with its own sediment. Nobody could fight his way through here, even with a message from a dead man. But you sit at your window when evening falls and dream it to yourself. Two Parables by Franz Kafka, translated by Willer and Edwin Muir, narrated by Brett Gregory. And
0: we'll go out now on Arts Express with Bro on the Global Television Beat, taking a look at the Hollywood East and West offerings this past year, or not, and what to expect, the good, the bad, and the ugly,
4: coming up this year. This is Bro on the Global Television Beat, Breaking Glass. Today's episode, Top Global Series 2023, Frugality and Austerity, Trump Creativity. American series, which had led the world in both number and in length and number of episodes, were severely cut back this year in light of a general retrenchment in the industry, a trend that will continue next year. Expect shorter series, fewer episodes, and faster pulling of the plug so that the landscape begins to look more like that of already frugal, budget-conscious series from around the world. Of my top 25 series this year, though many are limited series, many others have either been canceled or have ended prematurely. Only six series are returning. First to go, of course, are series that are socially relevant. Heading the list of unconscionable cancellations are Alaska Daily with Hillary Swank as a reporter helping to lay bare the local power structure, and oddly, Walker Independence, a Western sequel from The CW that focused more than most, not only on frontier prejudice, but also the power of the railroads and Eastern Capital in the development of the West. The most egregious collaboration Our cancellation, though, was Warner Brothers' Discoveries' decision to refuse to air after it had already been shot season four of Snowpiercer, Boon Joon Ho's nakedly anti-capitalist climate catastrophe series. Who has time anyway to watch series that deal, even if obliquely, with power relations and social problems? Amid the plethora of game shows, Let's Make a Deal, The Price is Right, Reality TV, World's Funniest Animals, and House of Reality TV Villains, and reruns, Yellowstone, as the producers have foisted on the general public due to the writers' and actors' strikes, but also due to their general cost-cutting, with the hope that some of this bottom-of-the-barrel cheap fare will outlast scripted series due to arrive next year. A year where it is increasingly difficult to find progressive series also featured shows that, for the sake of a gimmicky last-minute twist, utterly changed the trajectory of this series, as well as nominally interesting series that, because of inane and cliched political assumptions, utterly flounder. Two Irish series fell into these categories. Clean Sweep was, up until its last moment, a suspenseful series which had us sympathizing with a former IRA agent, now living a quiet life with a British policeman pursuing, or rather haunting her, presented as a Les Miserables, Javert-type villain, until the end, when the former spy commits a reprehensible act that utterly reverses our sentiments towards her and validates the cop's pursuit. A surprise, yes, but a psychotic one that attempts to cancel out our understanding of this woman and that represents a failure of nerve on the part of the creators and the network. Worse yet, was Hidden Assets, where a series about an Irish female cop investigating a drug ring, perhaps headed by, in all appearances, a dashing financier, instead turns, when she arrives in Belgium, into a terrorist tale tied to Syrian bloodletting that utterly misrepresents the West in trying to wreck that country. Yuck. Series with similar failings appear in my five worst. Nevertheless, I called from the approximately 135 series I watched this year, 25 worthy series from 10 countries and five continents, proving that creators survive and thrive even in the challenges and amid the rubble left to them by greedy producers and studios. Top 10 series, Love and Death. I'm just a soul whose intentions are good, goes the Eric Burden theme in a gospel rendering in this series with a stunning Elizabeth Olsen as a Texas suburban housewife who, in the dawning of the Reagan era, awakens and wants something more than the dull, drab existence to which she is confined. She chooses to have an affair which releases all kinds of tensions within her and this extremely repressed town, which is any town America then and now. Writer-director David E. Kelly Big Little Lies and Goliath, at his most extraordinary and a masterpiece of empathy for a woman craving freedom, carved from the most exploitative of genres, true crime. The series ends with the word shh, a shushing, and a directive to maintain this repression. This England, Michael Winterbottom's expertly rendered account of the British state during COVID as a pan to the British working class health administrators and to the colonial minority and aged victims of despicable policy management. Kenneth Branagh as Boris Johnson, obsessed with Shakespeare and Churchill, but utterly blind to the plight of his actual countrymen and women, illustrates the way, not only during COVID, but since, Western leaders are utterly cut off from their constituents. Dominic Cummings, played by Simon Paisley Day... Johnson's advisor who put across Brexit, is full of callousness and contempt for the jewel of the British welfare system, the National Health Service, wanting as a good neoliberal to clean house and privatize. The critique in this marvelous miniseries extends far beyond COVID as it figures the greedy malaise that is turning Western voters faster and faster to the far right, beyond prescient. The Good Mothers, this tale follows the efforts of three brave women in the south of Italy and Calabria, who sometimes forcefully, sometimes reluctantly take on the male violence and omerta, or silence, of the local mafia, the regatta, with sometimes liberatory but often tragic results. Unlike most mafia series which focus on physical violence, this one concentrates on the emotional violence used to maintain this power. When brutal force is invoked, though, it comes as such a surprise that it drives home the way that one underlies the other. Superb series about resisting entrenched male power. Alaska Daily. Hillary Swank is excellent as a no holds barred reporter dedicated to telling the truth and opposing corruption for which he has been exiled to a local Alaskan daily. One wishes there were even a single Hillary Swank left in the corporate media, and her exile illustrates what happens these days to truth tellers. The series' mainline is about a murdered indigenous woman. Along the way, the series also highlights bribery in that state involving its politicians and media to open up protected Alaskan land for mineral exploitation. A series far too good and explicit about actual power relations both in the state and in the media to survive, and indeed it was canceled after one glorious season. Little Bird, Bones of Crows, two Canadian series which deal with the same subject matter, the ethnic cleaning that continues to this day of that country of its indigenous population. The first is an intimate portrait of one woman wrenched from her family by the Canadian state as she wakes to her heritage and attempts to surmount the obstacles in her way that maintain this this suppression. awakening is painful and, in one instance, at least tragic, but it's presented with painstaking clarity. The second covers a longer history of this forced march of cultural genocide from before World War II to the 60s, and in a way fills in the gaps of the first series with Reservoir Dogs' Paulina Alexis as the most shipwrecked victim of this systemic abuse. Nordland 99, this Danish series set in the not-too-distant past, gives us a glimpse of maximal creativity within the new constraints of series' austerity. A less than half-hour format shot in rural exteriors with its eerie Twin Peaks air of menace created through nighttime effects like the swaying of the wind in the forest. His subject also recalls David Lynch's masterwork as three teens search for their missing compatriot and uncover a dark adult world that threatens to engulf them, but that by remaining true to themselves, they survive. Extraordinary work by series creator Kasper Moller Rask. The Last of Us. The next zombie apocalypse after the living deads is much meaner with fascists both in the organized government and power structure as we have today's Biden neoconservatives and street fascists outside in the form of Trump-like racist Kansas City vigilantes with the only respite being a socialist community, a true democracy, encountered by the battle-hardened warrior leading a young girl who could perhaps save the world. Episode 3, nominated for multiple Emmys, is a self-contained survivalist love story that illustrates the concentration in this series, whose crude source is a digital game on character at the expense of the infrequent appearances by the genre staple, Zombies. Only in the last episode does the series veer into a zombie and human kill zone and succumb to the temptation to return to its gamer origins. Rest in Metal, Episode 4 of Poker Face, the rest of this series is a slightly above average remake of Columbo, here replaced by Natasha Leon's heavy metal waif in episodes that alternate between being clever and gimmicky as the character Charlie Kale closes in on her quarry. However, episode four rises way above the rest as Chloe Savigny's down-and-out rocker, who will do anything for a return to her glory days, lays bare the emptiness behind the music industry's star-making and star-breaking machine, extraordinary work from a peerless actress. Killing County. Blacklisted footballer Colin Kaepernick produced this documentary series about Bakersfield, California, where the sheriff and his men kill with impunity and then cover up the murders with their control over the coroner's office, and they're presenting the victims as hardened criminals. Utterly different from most true crime reality series, which simply and blindly cover up police violence. Here, the patrolling and, in some cases, eliminating of a Mexican population by Caucasian cops is held up to scrutiny instead of lauded. Thicker Than Water, Netflix French series about racial tensions in French society as an Algerian TV reporter is promoted to anchor and then must endure the slings and arrows of a racist white power structure in order to maintain her fragile position. Most telling is an early scene where she is told she must straighten her natural curly black hair and dye it blonde. She conforms and gets in an elevator full of white women with the same blonde streaks, all now ascending the corporate ladder. Noelle Madani as showrunner, writer, and star manages to highlight Algerian sisterhood and contrast it with more cutthroat standard French careerism. Honorable mention, The Curse. This lead threesome is cloying, obnoxious, and difficult to watch as the woke neoliberal couple attempts to jump on the indigenous bandwagon to exploit their lands for what amounts to socially conscious gentrification. Meanwhile, the filmmaker, whose reality series will secure their profits, is beset with his own careerist anxieties. Most telling scene of a sometimes brilliant satire is the couple having masturbatory sex where neither connects with the other and which exemplifies their disconnection to the indigenous world they're exploiting. Woman of the Dead, Austrian series about a female embalmer in a rural hamlet who takes on the the local power structure which has colluded to eliminate her husband. She disrupts the attempt to turn the area into a luxurious ski resort in her quest for truth and vengeance against a religious, civic, and corporate elite who she exposes and destroys. Black Snow, Australian cold case murder mystery in Queensland, exposing the roots of wealth in a town where slaves from the island nation of Vanuatu, were brought to harvest the cane fields. Here, the investigation of the past sheds light on the single murder, but also on the larger crime of appropriation of an entire people. Limbo a Pakistani series set in the gorgeously verdant, breathtakingly mountainous Hunza Valley in Karachi, that has an old man, now owner of a luxury hotel, reminiscing about the mistakes he made in putting greed above human relations. This is succession, but entirely critical instead of a laudatory celebration of the Murdoch Empire. Black Santiago Club. From Benin comes this African series about a music club that is a fountain of not only musical, but cultural heritage in danger of being displaced by a greedy developer who wants to build condominiums for the rich. The series subject is the community organizing to reserve its social treasure. Never Have I Ever. Fourth and final season has the Indian teen of the title torn between two boyfriends. That tension, though, is not allowed to supersede her attempts to fulfill her dream of getting into Princeton, the actual focus of the final season in a liberatory way which upsets the usual single-minded romantic focus of the teen genre trajectory. Bay of Fires, beyond quirky Australian series about a thoroughly competent female executive exiled to a Tasmanian town of ne'er-do-wells who may all have a criminal past. Martha Dusseldorp, in the title role, holds the whole thing together while teaching the disorganized criminals a thing or two about more organized corporate scamming. Dark Winds Season 2, the series torn from Tony Hillerman's novels about Southwest indigenous features Zan McLaren and Jessica Mittan as Indian lawmen and deputy pursuing a deadly white racist and more pressingly coming to grips with the landholders who hire these types to bury their secrets. And this is Bro on the Global Television Beat, signing off.
0: And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself, too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.